Thank you, Father, for fathers. We have one day this year, like every year, that we set aside and we consider fathers in our lives and we honor them in a special way, and that is fitting. But, Father, as your word told us this morning, you have constructed our families with fathers and mothers and children so that they might reflect something that is true in the spiritual realm, that we serve a father who loves us and cares for us, but is also a disciplinarian at times and one who wants to bring us up in the right way. And as we have children who are commanded to obey our fathers, Father, you command us to obey you. So even as we reach out to the earthly fathers in our lives, thanking them and honoring them, I pray, Father, that the spiritual lesson in this would not be lost, that we would remember that while we have earthly fathers for a time, we have a heavenly father for all time. And that uh, our desire to show you love and obedience should be ever as great as that which we might have for our earthly fathers, and more so. And just as our attention goes to the words of our Father, our ears incline to their concerns, and we honor them by how we respond. Lord, same as it is this morning in your word. We listen to you as to a Father, to our Heavenly Father, as one who has the wisdom we need. and who knows things we do not yet understand. And you have been patient to instruct us through your word and continue to do so by your spirit. Lord, I pray this morning as we study a part of it, we would learn all about what you have for us there and more about you and about your son and about our relationship with him. These things we desire to know, Father, so we may serve you better in preparation for the day we see you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we have just begun our study of Judges, and we have a distance yet to go. We're still working through the background material at this point. There's some things we need to set straight before we dive in further. Samuel recognized that as well, so the first two chapters of the book that he wrote really are background material, things that set the stage for the rest of the work that he wrote. Last week in chapter 1, Samuel retold Israel's early stumbles as they enter into the land under Joshua, how they began to compromise on the plan that God assigned them as they entered in. Instead of driving out all the people that they found in the land, as God instructed, instead the Israelites would allow the Canaanites to remain. The nation of Israel opted for convenience over obedience in those early years. And when they did so, they violated the covenant that they had with the Lord, the covenant that was made through Moses at the mountain. And Samuel repeatedly stated in chapter 1 last week, that phrase that you might remember where he said, each tribe did not drive out the people of the land, from the respective territories given to each tribe. In some cases, Israel made them slaves, as you heard. In other cases, they simply bargained with the local inhabitants. And in other cases, Israel just retreated from them and didn't even try to take the land. Had the Israelites persevered in the work God gave them, in the obedience that he demanded, the Lord was fully prepared to grant the Israelites victory over those stronger peoples. We saw that just in the beginning with Judah and Simeon. They were able to win victory after victory in a part of the land as they obeyed and went out. But that obedience was short-lived. And after Judah and Simeon did their bit at the beginning, the other tribes shrank back, and even Judah and Simeon to an extent will do so. And it began, as you remember, with Benjamin failing to go into the city of Jerusalem after it was cleaned out by Judah and claim it for Israel from the Jebusites who were there. That was chapter 1. Now today, in chapter 2... 
We're going to go further into Samuel's introduction. As we do so, this is a good time for us to remember a couple things about the structure of the book. And it will be helpful if you have this handout. We gave one out last week. If you didn't grab one, there's more available in the back of the room. On the back, you see a very high-level breakout of the chapters. And if you wonder what all the white space below it is, well, then evidently you're not someone who takes notes. Because if you were, then you probably looked at that space and said, oh, goody, a place for my notes. That was the idea. But anyway, in the structure of this book, the book of Judges is not chronologically presented from chapter 1 to chapter 21. Some of the chapters in the book will proceed chronologically, particularly chapters 3 through 16. But others, like the ones before and after, either look forward to the events or backward in time to past events, which provide summaries or explanations for what's going on. So in chapters 1 and 2, you find background material that covers things that happened before the people entered the land, and also it summarizes things that happened throughout the period of Judges. And that background is important because it helps you interpret what's going on, why the book was written, why we care about these things. And furthermore, the distinction between chapter 1 and 2 in this regard, in the sense of an introduction, is chapter 1 gives us the human perspective on how Israel fell into apostasy. Chapter 2, on the other hand, gives us the divine perspective on those very same circumstances. So now, as we open up in chapter 2, we're going to see the perspective of the Lord himself as he looks down upon how Israel entered the land and what they did as they came in. And it's going to begin with a character that you know well or should know well from Scripture, from the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord as the central figure in chapter 2. So in this chapter, you're going to see another recounting of Israel's entrance into the land under Joshua and of how they slid into apostasy. But as you see it a second time, take note of God's perspective on these circumstances and how that perspective differs in some ways from the one that Samuel gave in chapter one, which is from the human perspective, that is from the people who experienced it on the ground. Judges chapter two, verse one. Let's begin. Now, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bachim. And he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you. But they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named the place Bachim, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. As I mentioned, the chapter opens on this central character, the angel of the Lord. Now, those of you who have studied with us here for a while or particularly through the book of Genesis with me, then you will remember very well the identity of the angel of the Lord. This is no ordinary angel. That's why the title is so specific. This is commonly, though not always, but almost always, it is a reference to the second person of the Godhead. In other words, this is the Old Testament way of describing Jesus pre-incarnate before he took the form of man. Interestingly, the title, Angel of the Lord, it appears 59 times in the Old Testament. But of those 59 times, 18 of them occur in the book of Judges. That's 30% of the time that you see the term used. What that tells you is that this is the period 
of theocracy in Jewish history, the period of Israel's history in which God himself would rule over his people. Now, he did this by running a nation through his word. The word of God was in their hands, the law, that was their their day-to-day instruction manual, if you will, just as it is for us today. And then when there were those who would violate the law, then he had judges, men, in some cases women, who would adjudicate the law, adjudicate those who went against it. And he had the priests and others like prophets. But at the helm of all of this, the captain of Israel, that is the Lord, the captain of his people. And he would make his presence known to the people of Israel from time to time. And he appears, as you see here, as the angel of the Lord, just as he appeared to earlier generations in the desert. So here we are, verse one, the angel of the Lord. It says he comes up from Gilgal to Bahim. Gilgal is a place near Jericho. Jericho is on the far eastern edge of Israel's border, right as you cross the Jordan River over from present day Jordan, the nation of Jordan. So about midway, north to south, lies Jericho right inside the border coming across. That was the first place Israel found themselves when they entered into the nation of Israel under Joshua. When they came in for the very first time, this is where they went. Why is the angel of the Lord said to come up from Gilgal? Well, because that was the last place in Scripture that we saw the angel of the Lord appearing to Israel. And you'd have to go back to Joshua 5 to find that. Now, I'm not saying that that Jesus literally just hung out at Gilgal and tell them. We're saying from a human perspective, we last saw him there. Now we see him here. He has come from there to here, so to speak. When Jesus came, when the angel of the Lord came to Israel in Joshua 5, in the place of Gilgal, he promised Joshua and the people that they would drive the Canaanites out of the land, even though the Canaanites were more powerful. But now you have about him, the Lord appearing again. But now notice the message he's giving to the people is very different than the one he gave at Gilgal. He says he will never break his word, which he gave to Israel through his covenant. That is the basis for Paul's teaching in Second Timothy two, verse 13, when he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Once he has put himself in us through covenant, in other words, once he has bound himself to us by his own word, he cannot deny himself in that sense. He cannot say one thing today and another thing tomorrow. So by virtue of the covenant, he is bound by his own faithfulness to keep his word. And that is a promise we can rest in. The Lord's faithfulness is not dependent on our faithfulness. Hear that again. The Lord's faithfulness is not dependent on your faithfulness once a covenant is in place. Once you enter into a covenant with the living God, his faithfulness is assured. And to that, friends, hallelujah, right? To the certainty of our salvation, to the source of our hope. For if it were any other way, if there was at any way possible for God's faithfulness to us to be dependent on us, who could be saved? Who in here has the confidence in their own righteousness apart from God that they could sustain themselves in a relationship with God? Who could stand? Men and women are fickle. We are faithless at times. Our faithfulness will waver. But as we said, praise the Lord, his faithfulness is never in doubt. That's why Paul can say with such confidence in Romans 8, 38 and 39, he says, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There just isn't a way 
to change God's word. Having spoken it to us in a covenant of promise, it will be. Then in verse two, having reminded the people that, you know, you can't blame me for I'm always faithful. In verse two, he reminds them, I gave you instructions, orders to make no covenants with other people in the land. For once you've made one with me, there is no need for any other. They should make no accommodation for the people in the land. They make no covenants, yes, but they make no other agreements either. They form no partnerships. They do not enter into marriages. They do not make the others their slaves even. They would not even accept gifts or consideration. Nothing of that sort should take place. This isn't about a prejudicial point of view concerning the people. It's about their relationship with the Lord. You don't need them. You don't need to rest in their strength or their largesse. You don't need their consideration or their women. Never mind the fact that they take a risk. And that risk is that they become too close to the gods of those people. At the end of verse 2, he concludes, you didn't do what I said. And then he asks that really pointed question. He says, what is this you have done? What he means is consider the consequences for you for disobeying me, the Lord. In effect, he's saying, you don't realize the seriousness of the mistake you just made. Because this generation of Israel just repeated the sin of their fathers. They have disobeyed the covenant in exactly the same way that Israel did when they gathered in the wilderness at the mountain. Notice in verse 2, the Lord said, I told you to do two things. Drive the people out, but what else? Tear down the altars, the Canaanite altars that are in the land. An altar, by definition, is a place of sacrifice, which implies worshiping a god of some sort. When the Canaanites put up their altars, they were setting up altars to false gods, of course. And then at the end of verse 2, the Lord has said to them, you did not obey me in what I asked you to do. So what we're hearing is the problem isn't merely the fact that they didn't drive out the people. The problem is they didn't tear down the altars. Over time, the people of Israel adopted the false worship practices of the Canaanites, which, by the way, is what Moses and Joshua told them would happen. It's what they were warned about. We read that at the first week of this study. So the nation of Israel now, sitting here today, as they've entered the land and have begun to spread out, they have now repeated the sin of the earlier generation of Israel that wandered in the desert. Friends, what happened to that generation, the earlier one? Once again, you have the people of Israel here constructing, so to speak, golden calves now in the land for themselves. And if the previous generation was condemned for their entire lives to die in the desert for one calf, what do you think the Lord has in store for this generation? Made worse by the fact, by the way, that they now have their past generation as an example that they could have learned from. So it's it's really worse for this generation because they knew better in having seen it once. So in verses three through five, the Lord pronounces his penalty on this generation. He says the people will suffer the consequences of their disobedience because they didn't drive the people out from the land. Now they're going to have to live with these people as if a thorn was in their side and a literal thorn. Think about the literal thorn for a minute. If you could imagine this, somebody actually taking a sharp object and piercing your side with it and just leaving it there. It's a painful irritant, right? It, it's bothersome. It would cause you to wince in pain at a regular interval whenever you move or etc. It impedes peaceful living. It gets in the way. It's a distraction. Well, that's how the Canaanites are going to be for the people of Israel, only on a whole different level. We're not just talking about a little physical pain here now. We're talking about real things of significance happening, happening in the land. And then secondly, the Lord says the gods of the Canaanites are going to continue to be a snare. Every new generation of Israel 
will face the same challenges that this generation failed to confront. That's what the Lord is saying. Every new successive generation of Israel in the land is going to be tempted by the very same false gods that this generation was tempted by. Why? Because they're still there. Because the first generation didn't run them off. So now your sons will deal with them and your daughters and your sons and daughters, sons and daughters will deal with this same thing. Some of them will be confronted by the Canaanites and their gods and they'll resist them. They'll remain faithful. But many more are going to be drawn into idolatry as a result of this snare remaining in the land, which is a direct result of their forefathers not obeying the covenant. The Lord's judgment is fulfillment of words he gave to them in the law itself back in Deuteronomy. Chapter 5, 9 through 10. Listen to what the Lord said to Israel would happen to them. He says, you shall not worship foreign gods or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. God said serving false gods under the terms of the old covenant came with certain penalties. Multi-generational penalties. Now, this is a phrase or a verse that sometimes is easily misunderstood. The Lord is not saying he forced later generations to pay for the sin of their fathers. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the penalty earned by that false apostate generation, the one that commits idolatry, the penalty that they earn is going to reverberate down through later generations. It's like the old saying, and this is sort of a silly thing, but you may have heard someone say, I'm going to spank you so hard your grandchildren will hurt. That the penalty is so severe upon that generation that it will still be felt in generations to come. And it's not that those later generations are paying anything for the earlier. They're just victims of the earlier generation's mistake. But the Lord is so serious about this problem and so determined to show the error of it that when he brings a penalty, it's going to be a lasting one with multi-generational impact. And that's what you see happening in the book of Judges. The new generation of Israel that enters into the land with a covenant, they must obey it every bit as much as that previous generation was supposed to. And when they enter, it starts well under Joshua, but it doesn't stay there. They eventually stray. When they stray from obedience, they ended up in idolatry, and that idolatry led to a judgment that passed on for many generations in the land. Now that pattern brings us to a clear picture of faith in Jesus Christ. As you all know, the name Joshua is the same name as Jesus. Joshua is Yeshua in Hebrew, and Yeshua becomes Jesus through Greek and into English. So Joshua himself is a picture of Christ in the scripture, not in every detail of his life, but in a general sense, he pictures Christ. For example, we've said here before that the Israelites could never have entered the promised land under the leadership of Moses because Moses represents the law and you can't enter the promised land by means of law. But how do you enter the promised land with at the helm? Joshua, that is Yeshua, Jesus, you enter into the promised land through Christ alone. That's one example, but the point is this man, Joshua, starts to become for us in many ways a picture of Jesus. And in this case, only by the presence and the leadership of Yeshua will the people of God remain faithful and obedient. Think about it. When you take Jesus out of the picture, the human heart is incapable of pleasing God. When you stray from the living God you eventually end up in idolatry. Paul teaches this 
downward spiral, this principle that as you depart from God, you inevitably set yourself on a course where you end up in idolatry. He explains that succinctly in Romans chapter one. Listen to verses 21 through 23. He says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible men and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. They moved from a knowledge of God to a distancing of themselves from God to a foolish set of speculations which darkened the heart, thinking themselves wise, they became increasingly foolish until they reached the point where they're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Idolatry. Judges is another example of this truth. Joshua, the man, serves as a shadow of Jesus, the leader who holds his nation to obedience. When the people of God were following Yeshua in the form of Joshua, they were obedient. They were listening. They were following. They weren't perfect. They weren't sinless. We're talking about a man now. But in pictorial terms, he represents how the nation of Israel was held to obedience by following Yeshua. But when Yeshua was gone, when Joshua was gone, they fall away. They reach the point where now they're doing what is right in their own eyes, as we read. And they're prone to disobedience and they are inevitably leading into idolatry. What is the solution to the problem? We've got to bring Yeshua back. Only this time it isn't the shadow of Joshua. It'll be the man Christ. And only by faith can you please God. For only by the faith we have in Christ through the Spirit are we in a position to obey. Finally, notice as we read in the first passage there of chapter 2, the people of Israel, when they hear of this penalty, they are upset. And what are they upset at? They're upset that the Lord has pronounced judgment upon them. And that's very understandable. Everybody gets upset when they get caught. No one likes punishment. There's nothing surprising about that. In fact, it's reminiscent of what their own fathers said back in the desert when they were judged for their sin under similar circumstances. Numbers 1432, after the people had denied that the land was good and had objected to the the good testimony of Joshua and Caleb, they believed the spies that said the land was not good, then that was the last time God put up with their testing of him. In verse 32, he says to the people, as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days for every day, you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years, and you will know my opposition. Verse 39, when Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. How do you think the people get to this place again? How do you think here we go with just a generation removed? They're in the land they've had the Lord leading them. And they had the example of their forefathers. But here we go again. How do you get here? Well, Samuel in chapter 2 moves now to answer that question in the rest of chapter 2. He goes back now at chapter 2, verse 6. This is where the chronology of the book gets a little tricky. Think flashback. Think one of those movie scenes where the scene just kind of goes watery for a second. And then we flash back in time. And we're looking now at the days when Joshua first brought the people into the land. Verse 6. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Then 
Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance, in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaza. So all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their father, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down before them. Thus, they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. So this is a broad summary of how they got into trouble with the Lord, similar to the one in chapter 1, but now from the perspective of the Lord. And just as we learned in chapter 1, they were in a good place when they came in. They served Joshua, or they served the Lord all the days of Joshua. In fact, notice, as long as Joshua was alive, or any of the elders who had come in with him and had seen the same things in the land, as long as that generation of good people in Israel was alive, the people were held into obedience. But after Joshua dies... After the elders are gone, after all the memories of what the Lord had done was gone, notice a new generation comes up that specifically did not know the Lord. You had an unbelieving generation, as Hebrews tells us, in the desert. Then you had a believing, largely speaking, believing generation that comes in under Joshua, followed by an unbelieving generation rising up now again in the land. As a result of that new generation, they're now worshiping Baal. They forsook the Lord, they rejected him, they follow all their gods, they bow down and they anger him. The conclusion of this in verses 14 and 15 are the fulfillment of the words of the angel of the Lord at the beginning of the chapter. The people now see Canaan become a thorn in their sides. The Israelites are not going to live in peace. The cities are going to be plundered by the Canaanites. And in some cases, the people will be captured and made slaves of the Canaanites. So now you understand what a thorn means. Thorn doesn't just mean a bad neighbor that you have to put up with who keeps loud parties and a dog that barks all night. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about people who come into your city and steal everything you have, burn your cities, and occasionally take your women and children off and make them slaves. That's a serious thorn. This goes on for generations. And the people of Israel, friends, are never going to be strong enough to oppose the Canaanites in their own might. They can't solve this problem. They're a small nation compared to the ones that they're surrounded by. The Lord has only granted them the victories they've had up to this point because they were faithful, because they were following him. At the moment they stopped following him, he stops providing the victories. And so as punishment, he's not going to vanquish the Canaanites anymore. They're stuck with this problem, at least for a time. They're not going to be able to stand, he says, in the face of their enemies. Consider what burden of fear this brought to the people. Never mind the pain of it. Never mind the suffering. Think about the fear even on the good days. They are not a mighty people. They are surrounded by their enemies in a land that they do not know that well. And because of their disobedience, they are subject to the power of those enemies on a whim, on an ongoing basis. They must have felt a little bit like they're on a raft in the middle of the ocean surrounded by sharks. Never sure when their last day was going to be. Why? Because they forsook a covenant that they made with the Lord. And so Samuel summarizes in verse 15, they were severely distressed 
but they're distressed friends because they did evil. They're not distressed because God is mean. It's not about God doing the wrong thing. It's about them doing the wrong thing. What Samuel does is summarize now how the period of judges is going to play out as a result of this judgment. So you just had the backstory. Now you're going to get a summary of the book of Judges, in a sense. Verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. Even though the people were under judgment for idolatry, notice first, and I think the most important thing to take out of that passage, what does the Lord do? He doesn't forsake them. Even though they were faithless and as a result under judgment, that doesn't equate to God rejecting his people. There's a big difference between a father rejecting his child and disciplining his child. In fact, you can't do both. Hebrews says in chapter 12 that if a father does not discipline his child, he essentially makes that child illegitimate as if it's not his. So if we're to see what's going on here accurately, we have to see the discipline of the Lord as proof that he maintained his relationship, not that he rejected his people, which is why the Lord said, I will not go back on my covenant. And more than that, when their cries rise up to him, he pities them to the point that he brings them mercy and grace despite their unfaithfulness. He raises up judges, people who will guide them back into obedience and protect them from their enemies to a degree, which proves even more that though we are faithless, he remains faithful. How do we interpret a book like Judges filled with stories of apostasy, of second and third chances gone awry because the people will not stop? rejecting the Lord and his covenant. How do we interpret that as a sign, as a show of God's mercy and grace and love continuously? And friends, love is not love if it does not include discipline for wrongdoing. It is not loving to let people under your authority do whatever they want to their own detriment. So discipline is an integral part of showing love. But that doesn't mean it has to be harsh. It's always with a mind of a good outcome. If judges is nothing It is a testimony of God's faithfulness in the face of relentless apostasy. Notice the grace of God at work in verse 18. He raises up judges and moreover, he puts his spirit on these judges to deliver the people from their enemies, at least temporarily. And he does this. Why? Because they're groaning. Why are they groaning? Because they're at the disposal of these enemies. Why are they at the disposal of these enemies? Because of their own sin. So really, why are they groaning? Because of their own mistakes. And yet God shows up in compassion. And then, as we said, how do they respond? They don't listen. They go right back to spiritual harlotry. Notice, though, they remain, let's say, more or less obedient for as long as the judge is around. As soon as the judge is gone, back to the old ways. If you look at your chart I mentioned last week, you'll notice there's good gaps between the periods of judges. There's periods of this history when no judge is on duty. Those are your periods of apostasy. And then the times when the judges reemerge, people listen. 
at least for a while. Friends, is that a sign of faithfulness? As the saying sometimes goes, character is who you are when no one is looking. At all times, you live according to what you believe, even though you can't see the thing you have faith in. These people didn't show any evidence of that. They showed merely the evidence that they follow the one they see. And when that person disappears, the spiral starts up again. And notice the writer says it gets worse with each generation. They don't go back to where their fathers were. They exceed the sinfulness of their fathers at each turn. Now, we might look at this whole pattern and and sort of shake our heads here a little in, in astonishment. And we might have even a little pity for Israel as you watch this pattern. But be careful. Be careful because you don't want to be the person who takes the Lord's faithfulness for granted either. And yet so often I think we can and don't even realize it. The Lord showed Israel mercy and grace every time he raised up one of those judges, right? And he did it in response to their groaning. He did it because he had a covenant with them. He did it because he loved them, because he was compassionate to them. And then as he did that, in each case, the people spurned the Lord's mercy. And some of us would look at that pattern and say, well, you know, they had too many chances as it was. He should have cut it short long ago. Why would he keep giving them chance after chance when all they do is throw it back in his face? But friends, you and I are doing exactly the same thing many times and don't even realize it. That's the essence of when Jesus talks about taking a log out of our own eye before we worry about the splinters and others. Be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you consider fair, because when you become the subject of the judgment, the rules probably won't be in your favor if you're not careful. When we sin in our covenant, of course, we're in a different covenant than they were in at the time. We are in the new covenant by grace. But we can still sin, of course, even as we now exist in this covenant. Have you ever considered that as you sin while in covenant to the living God, you potentially provoke him to anger in the same way that the nation of Israel provoked their God? Now, keep in mind, we're not talking about provoking him to the point that the covenant itself is at risk. There's no such thing. Notice again, Israel is not losing their covenant and God is not going to be faithless because of their sin. But nonetheless, there was still a consequence. And though you are saved from the eternal consequence of sin. The eternal penalties have been paid on your behalf already by Christ. Despite that, you should not expect the Lord to withhold the consequences of sin simply because he saved you from the penalty of sin. Because if you were to withhold the consequences of sin, then as Hebrews tells us, you would be as if illegitimate. If you forsake the Lord in one way or another, you disobey, in other words, Christ's commands, you live in in unrepentant sin, what do you think lies in store? Are you assuming the Lord just grants unlimited mercy? Are we any different than those in Israel who knew him but failed to keep his word? John tells us that we can have God's forgiveness and release from the consequences of sin, the temporal consequences, but if and only if we repent. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, well, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, clearly, you can take that comment and apply it in the context of salvation. You can say to someone who has not yet believed, if you confess and believe, you will be saved, as Romans 10.9 tells us. And that's certainly true. But John's speaking here to believers. He's looking past the moment of salvation and he's considering the moment of our walk. As a Christian, if you as a Christian live without a willingness to confess your sin, to acknowledge that you do yet still have sin and and need the Lord's grace in the midst of it, then, as John says, you're only deceiving yourself. 
If you're not fooling God, then to what effect is your pretending? Because he's the judge. So the writer says, John says, we are called to confess our sins to God. Now, friends, confession implies repentance, a sincere desire to move beyond the sinful pattern. It's not enough to say every day I plan to do the wrong thing and every night I plan to end the day with a confession. There's no confession. That's a game. And God will not be mocked. Confession means we recognize that in our pattern there is something to be addressed and we want to address it. But it also acknowledges that our past sins hold the potential for consequences that we don't want to face if God is willing to cleanse us from them. Now, friends, again, you're already saved by faith from the eternal penalty of sin. Your faith in Christ is sufficient once for all. There's no need to return to repentance or return to confession in that regard. That's a one time moment. John is talking about temporal issues. We are called to confess in the expectation that we might receive God's mercy here and now. In the same way that the Israelites did in the time of Judges. By their moaning, that is, by their appeals, God responded with Judges. John says he is faithful and righteous to forgive us if we confess. The Lord is full of compassion. He is faithful to his promise, so he will forgive us. And he is just to do so because his son has already paid the penalty and reconciled us to God by his blood. How many Christians, though, do you know, and perhaps you're one of them at times, who fail to avail themselves of this mercy. Again, I'm not talking about a get-out-of-jail-free card, license to go about doing whatever you want, and then we pull this little statement out at the end of the day. That's licentiousness. That won't get you anywhere. But to those who have clearly reached the end point of sin in their life at some particular thing, and they're ready to move beyond it, the Lord says by his word, confess it, and he will forgive it, and you can move beyond the consequences of it as well. That's a a benefit of the new covenant promise we have in Christ. But the people of Israel don't do that. They don't respond in this way. They respond in a different way. They take advantage of God's mercy. They spurn the Lord. And every time a new judge comes, they're only good for a time. So to end the chapter, Samuel summarizes the Lord's response from what he has observed in the hearts of the people. He says in verse 20, So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So as the angel of the Lord declared, the Lord decided to leave the Canaanites in the land. But notice why now. It's a test. Now, like all tests in Scripture, the test is intended to reveal the hearts of the people. So who among, here's the test, who among the people of Israel are going to worship false gods? Let's find out who's who. Who's going to remain faithful? Who's going to worship a false god? And as you'll see, if you look over the history of Israel, many fall to the snare. Many in Israel fail the test. Many hearts in the people among the people of Israel are shown to be false in the way that they go after these false gods that the Lord leaves in the land like a divining rod to find out who is who within the people. Now, there is always, though, a remnant, according to Scripture. The test reveals the remnant of Israel as well, those whose hearts are true to the Lord and will not go after the false gods. This test, which you see beginning here at the start of Judges, lasts for many, many generations all the way through the history for the most part of the Old Testament. In fact, the concept of remnant, that is, of a smaller group within a larger 
congregation who truly know the Lord while surrounded by a larger group of apostate people. That concept of a remnant, particularly in Israel, starts here and continues throughout the history of Israel. In fact, it continues to today. As Paul teaches in Romans chapter 11, verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah when he pleads with Lord against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Well, in the same way, then, there has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So the time of Judges marks the beginning of a period of testing for Israel when the people are purposely exposed to the sin and the idolatry of the enemies in their land, enemies that they did not drive out and therefore had to suffer in the midst of. But God, in the way that he does, turns all things to good. He uses these people now as a means of testing the hearts of Israel using it to distinguish between the sinful, unfaithful hearts and those that would be faithful in the remnant. Friends, without this test, how would you know the people who are who in the nation of Israel? How would we ever know the difference between those who were his and those who were not? The difference now will be evident throughout all generations of Israel until the coming of the true Joshua. And then when that comes, the people will experience that test. Hearts tested and exposed by him. Some living faithfully, some following the gods of their enemies. Now, we are not Israel, to make clear. We are not Israel. We are the church. We are different. But we are in covenant as well to the same living God. Let's go out remembering that we don't provoke the Lord by our disobedience any more than we would our fathers. And let's learn from the example of judges. We can be faithful to a God who always remains faithful and we can have his pleasure. Or we can be faithless. He'll remain faithful. But he will discipline for he loves us too much to do otherwise. Let's seek for his pleasure and not for his discipline and go to prayer with me. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the reminder. Thank you for fathers. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you, Father, that you've called us into a covenant in which our faithfulness is not the criteria by which we would receive eternal life. Rather, Father, it becomes a test, a test by which you will reward so that we may know your pleasure. Lord, bring us back. There's much to come in this study, much to learn. The highs and the lows of these people can become lessons to us. Let us take them as lessons and gain what you will give us and invite others to join us so that this might be something we share. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.